Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. I'm Mika Simmons, and you're listening to the Happy Vagina Podcast. Coming up, we have Nell Hudson. Author and star of Outlander and Victoria, and we do a deep dive into her reclamation of objectification and why laughter is the very best medicine. But first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsors. As you know, this is an independent podcast. I like to keep it that way, so I can choose controversial topics and interview guests for their insights, not their star meter. And this week's episode is sponsored by Beja London. Beja is a London-based lingerie and swimwear brand for all body shapes, with cup sizes from AA up to 36H. I've been wearing Beja for the last few months and the perfect fit and support of the bra with just a hint of lift, simply designed with just a touch of sass, makes them perfect for day to night, under a t-shirt or for a hot date with yourself. If you're unsure of your size, they also offer a 20-minute online bra fitting to make sure you get the right shape and size to ensure you feel you're most content and empowered. Just go to www.beja.london. That's B-E-I-J-A. www.beja.london. And once you've chosen your bra, pull some knickers to match. Then use our code THEHAPPYVAGINA at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. That's THEHAPPYVAGINA at www.beja.london. Welcome to the Happy Vagina podcast, dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who've made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And today, the Happy Vagina has gone into the wild... And we are live from Jupiter Rising Arts and Music Festival in Scotland at Jupiter Artland. Jupiter Rising, hello. <laughs> it's so good to be here. This is the Happy Vagina's first festival. We've done a lot of lives, but this is an honour to be at this festival. And I am joined today by the multi-talented author, yoga teacher, star of Outlander and Victoria and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I've not been able to watch yet because I'm too terrified, actress Nell Hudson. Nell, welcome to The Happy Vagina. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour and a pleasure. This is a long time coming. I've been promising now to interview her for the last two years, and I think she thought that I was lying. But I was saving a very special occasion like this to interview her. And this is a special occasion because... The theme is the source, and that means, for those of you that can't see, we are sat on stage in front of a giant pink vulva, aren't we now? It's beautiful. Can you describe <laughs> it? It's like a milfoy of pink layers with beautiful black sprouting pubic hairs all around it. 
It's quite warm in here and I feel like I'm being reborn. <laughs> there is a rebirth going on. So it's quite squidgy. And I think probably if anyone gets really drunk, they could probably just have a little bit of a snooze on there later. I do know people that sometimes sort of sleep against the wall at nightclubs. Actually, it's my brother. He'll quite often <laughs> find a wall, lean against it. So if anyone at the festival later wants someone to go and lean against and have a bit of a snooze, I recommend the Volvo here. It's very squidgy. Anyway, we are absolutely honoured to be here and we are going to get the sauce juices flowing immediately with the Hafrigina quiz. Now, I know that you're a fan of the pod and you know all about this quiz, so we're just going to dive straight in. Fab. We've got five questions for you. They are either or. This is a very binary quiz. It's quite, it's quite Generation X, but I do <laughs> tend to find it brings out some very interesting discussions. So now, Hudson, question number one, brief or G-string? G-string? I'm so embarrassed. I no, genuinely... No, can we just... Let's just, <laughs> let's just pause there before we go any further. Okay. Why are you embarrassed that it's a G-string? I feel like it makes me a bad feminist that do I you? prefer wearing G-strings. But I do. I find them more comfortable. I feel held and contained but can by we, it. Can we, just, can we just unpick that, though? Mm. What is it about wearing a G-string that makes a woman a bad feminist? Because I feel exactly the same way. Well... There was the famous case in Ireland, wasn't there, when a woman was accusing a man of rape and the defence lawyer held up the woman's black G-string and said, but she was wearing a black G-string. <gasps> so she was obviously asking for it. So there's definitely a stigma around what wearing a G-string means. And it's as if we're sort of wearing them in order to tempt someone. I remember in the film, I think it's in 10 Things I Hate About You, 90s classic. Mm. Or is it noughties? God, I'm old. Yeah. Anyway. Great film. <laughs> Um, they go through the leading female's underwear drawer and they find a black thong and they're like, that means she wants to get laid. And I saw that film when I was like nine and it's stuck with me to this podcast. I know, but what you're talking about essentially is slut shaming yeah. and objectification, which is going to be our main topic today. Let's not go too deep into it now because I have nothing to talk about later. But objectification, slut and shaming in general. And it's still to me slightly peculiar that what you've just described and the whole concept of what underwear a woman wears might make us a good or a bad feminist. I mean, I think one of the things that is suggested about a woman who dresses provocatively, because that's the insinuation yes. there. The insinuation is, is that if you are wearing a slightly rated piece of underwear, you are a provocative person. And one of the things, the suggestions that comes up over and over again is that that means that that woman is not that intelligent. So there's the next step of it is that a woman who is dressing in a way that is in any way sexual is not an intelligent being. So lots to unpick there. We're going to come back to it. Yeah. But also when I was getting ready to come to this festival, I don't know if you had this. Did you like, so I was packing loads of thongs or, or, or and, and I was like, if I, is there going to be lose? Am I going to need to pee in a field? And if I pee in a field this weekend, is it better to bring a brief? Because then, so you're, you're squatting and you're peeing in the field and, and you, and like, so you, you take your trousers down. Yeah. I mean, at one stage I was going to wear a jumpsuit and I thought, what are you doing? Then yeah. you put your breasts out as well. <laughs> so, so you take, so you take your knickers down, okay? You take your jeans down and then you take your knickers down to pee in the field. And then, and then if you're wearing a brief, then you're covering your bottom quicker than you would be when, then you were wearing a thong now did you have any it's kind of thoughts no but I'm like a shameless peer like I, I'm like oh well that's my bum oh really <laughs> it's like a well known like friends and family like know that I will pee anywhere really yeah especially if you're wearing a dress or a skirt you can pee 
in public. Okay, but okay. because you've got a tent around you. Okay, but not that I'm advocating breaking the law. No, I mean that was thanks. That is what I was going to say because it is actually illegal to be in public. I know, but then build more <laughs> toilets for women. Men have these bloody standing up urinals all over town, and yeah. women don't have anything. So. I was going to ask you about that. Reclaim like, the streets. Reclaim the streets. <laughs> Pay in the streets, women. That's the next the next campaign. Paying the streets. Yeah. But have you ever used one of those sort of like... Um, clitoral, yeah. Well, no. No, I haven't either. Okay, we'll drop that subject. Let's move on. <laughs> um, next question. Brazilian or Bush? Both. Yeah. I tend to... I have such bad body dysmorphia, which I feel like is a relevant topic for this podcast because it is such... I feel like a feminine leaning... It's not that men don't have it and non-binary people don't have it. Everyone has it. But I feel better about myself when it's tidy, just in general. And I have that with like having a tan or like my hair looking nice. Just there's certain things that I do for me that probably if I lived on a desert island and I'd never seen a magazine or a supermodel, I wouldn't feel the need to do. But it's a sort of, it's for me, like I feel better. And is that, is that because I kind of like, come in and out of that is that quite consistent for you that that is a necessity for your mental health I wouldn't say it's a necessity and believe me I get rage if if a man ever said like told me what to do with it I would find it hard not to punch him in the face right <laughs> right so I'm re- I'm re- I'm an advocate of the bush yeah and I, you know I think it's probably a little bit hypocritical of me in a way to not always have wear one <laughs> myself but um like I won't have a nervous breakdown if my pubes grow. <laughs> mm. I, I was I was recently wild swimming and a woman walked out of the wild swimming with a swimsuit and a huge bush and I was like, come on, things are changing. This is good. Mm. But I, I also advocate for people to do whatever they want to. Next question. Menstrual cup or tampon? Tampon. I've never tried a menstrual cup, so I can't say I'm against them. I love a tampon. Mm. Hate sanitary towels. Mm. I feel like I'm wearing a nappy. Mm. <laughs> next question cool. you're going to really regret giving me a quick answer to that one okay <laughs> or maybe not maybe not it's a happy vagina quiz anything can happen Ooh. clitoral or g-spot both again but clitoral historically i think only in recent years for me was i like oh the g-spot and it's taken 15 years of having sex and that's great i'm so happy for myself and because has- it's so lovely and has the new, so obviously one of the really significant pieces of science that's come out mm. in the last maybe 10 years is that they're actually kind of the same thing. So yeah. it's really important that we keep them separate because they are different areas of pleasure. But the G-spot is actually the back of the nerve endings of the clitoris. So it's the clitoral urethral complex. And that is now kind of being spoken about quite widely in mainstream media and magazines and stuff. Has that, because it helped me. I was like, oh, that's all it is. It's not some elusive thing. And of course, some women have it and some don't because it depends on how your body's made up. Mm. So it's not like you're missing a trick by not having it. You just may not have the anatomy that would be able to support that. Totally. Did that that help you at all? Yeah, seeing the diagram where you see like the, is it called the legs of the clitoris that extend like all the way around the back? I was like, oh, that's why it feels good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Last question on our quiz is normally about a vibrator or a hand, but because we're in Scotland, and because I know that you have a, a soft spot for Scotland, having filmed Outland up yeah. here, my last question is Arthur's seat. We're wondering what this segue is. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur's seat or Nelson's column? What does that mean? What's that, you, what's that a euphemism for? Okay, Nelson's column means dildos. Well, it could do is now. Is that what we're saying? It could, it could do now. It could, it could. <laughs> 
An Arthur's what? <laughs> an Arthur's seat. Arthur's seat. You can take it historically. You can take it architecturally. Okay. You can you can take it agriculturally, or you could take it sexually, whichever you want. Well, my dad calls me Nelson because my name is Nell, so I I feel like I have a, a weird loyalty to Nelson. Nelson's column. Okay. This feels weird talking about sex and then being like, my dad has a nickname for me. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, considering you've just admitted you recently found the G spot, I think choosing yeah. Nelson's column is really appropriate. Thanks. I am surprised that you didn't choose Arthur's seat because obviously you do have a very fond. That's the end of the quiz, I should just say, in case anyone thinks I'm going to say anything else outrageous. You do have a, a very fond relationship with Scotland, don't you? Yeah, for sure. I love Scotland I filmed I mean I'd been to Scotland a couple of times as a child and been really entranced by it it felt like a place where all the kind of mythological fairy tales of my childhood could actually happen and then yeah I came to film Outlander here back in 2013 was the first year I think I filmed that which is almost 10 years ago which is crazy and yeah so I have quite a close relationship with it I feel like I know I lived in Glasgow for the first series of that so I feel like I know Glasgow pretty well and I've got to know Edinburgh better over the years. And I just love it. It's funny, you cross the border and you're just like, you can feel this kind of different atmosphere in the air. It is a different culture and a different feeling. It's very special, isn't mm. it? I love it up here too, but I am going to have to ask you about the mythical fantasies from when you were a child that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I, I can't just like that fairy stories. Slip. I just love stories. Obviously, I'm an actor and a writer, so stories is life. But so when you were a child... It's pretentious. You- <laughs> I don't think that's pretentious. I just watched this amazing TED talk where a man was just talking about the, the, you know, the missing element of how, as children, we're all forced into thinking that math is more important than creativity, and it's just not. Einstein said imagination is more important than thought. But I'm, I'm quite curious to what, what the feeling was for you, like you. So, if that quality of, of the, of the, of the myth and the fantasy mm. was something that you were inside of or exploring as a child what was it about Scotland that made you feel like anything was possible here I kind of know what the feeling is but what Mm. what was it for you I find place location very evocative and that is I think funnily enough we've been talking about ADHD recently and I think part of potentially having an ADHD brain is that when I find something that I am interested in I'm like completely consumed by it and obsessed with it and my imagination runs wild and had that a bit with coming to Scotland. It was like, oh, I'm in it, I'm in the story. And that just engulfed me. Mm. I think the light up here is really exceptional as well. Mm. I was up here back in May, actually here in Jupiter Artland. And I, and I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and it was still light outside. And I was like, this is a magical place. Mm. You know, maybe, maybe it's because it's, it's so far up. I, I don't know, but I remember as a child too, feeling like, it's a sense of familiarity, but also difference. I guess coming to the festival, the Edinburgh Festival, the Fringe Festival is is particularly special because there are so many artists around. But like you coming to Scotland outside of that really kind of like dense period of time when there's so many artists around. Like last summer I came up to Scotland on holiday and we went wild swimming and it's just, it's one of those memories that I'm never ever gonna forget. Mm. It just touched my heart and my soul. Moving on now, you are kind of the darling of period dramas. So Victoria and Mm -hmm. Outlander, as Mm -hmm. I just mentioned, you you also have just done Texas Chainsaw Massacre. With Victoria, I'd like to talk about that a bit because 
One of the things that I've got really into since starting The Happy Vagina is this thing called the clit test. Do you know about that? Not really, no. So the clit test was basically, there's something called the Bletchdar test, which is a, a woman, a couple of women feminists described that if you only had, you had for, for a film to pass the Bletchdar test, you had to have two women in a scene within the film not talking about a man essentially and it was really difficult to make that happen so a very clever woman who i know started the clit test which is doing really well and essentially is a suggestion that within film that a woman's pleasure the clitoris or an orgasm should be at least mentioned and i can tell you right now that there's only one period drama and that's bridgerton which oh. to me is not even really a period drama. I'm a little bit like, is this a period drama really? Because it's so modern, right, in its feeling. But that's the only, that is the only, the only period drama that has passed that test. Mm. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about your experience on Victoria. Is there any sex in Victoria? There was sex in Victoria. There weren't, you know, intense sex scenes. It was kind of done gone with the wind style where you just sort of show a woman in bed postcoital with her hair looking a little must and smiling to herself knowingly and was it fairly portrayed between the men and the women i remember doing a scene that was me and the character playing my love interest ferdinand kingsley who played um francatelli in the series and we were meant to be postcoital and we were both servants in the show and it was like we'd had a quickie on our lunch break <laughs> and um he had to be topless and I was like in all my full petticoats and clothes. Oh. I was completely covered up and he was topless and I remember he, him being like, oh, I feel a little bit uncomfortable because I didn't, <laughs> he, he wasn't warned basically because as a man, they assumed he'd be fine with having his top off. But for me, I was like, well, it makes sense. Like the number of buttons and fastenings on Victorian clothes, like you would just toik your skirts up if you were having a quickie yeah. like that. And yeah, if the passion struck the man in the moment and he wanted to take his shirt off, then cool. I mean, the reason that I just laugh so strongly is because like literally from the beginning of time, generally it's the other way around. Yeah, oh, totally. Normally Most you have a butt naked woman and yeah. the guy's, yeah, yeah, just unzipping. <laughs> yeah. Would, would Victoria pass the clit test? I, d I doubt it. No. And and do you did when you were like prepping for Victoria? Did you do any research into sex in that era? Like, did is, do you think it was a, an accurate representation? So you played one of the women that was working in Victoria's household. Yes. But but with with her, what did you learn from doing the series? Was there any kind of like research that you did that taught you about Victoria's relationship with sex? Definitely. So we are so lucky in that Victoria wrote diaries religiously. So we have those as a primary source of information to learn about her. And she alludes a lot to her sex life with Albert and says, you know, that she's happiest when in his embrace and he's whispering tender, loving words to her. And there she says that she's kind of buried in his chest. And she says all these like very sweet, lovely references to their sex life. Basically, it's quite clear that they had quite a good time in bed, I think. And she really fancied him. But how does that kind of like correspond with the idea that within Victorian uh, Britain there was mm. a the role of a woman within the partnership relationship of marriage that the woman wasn't supposed to expect pleasure? Is that right? That, yeah. That actually, how, did you ever find out how that kind of like tied in what the politics of the day were around men and women and what the role of the man and woman was in the bedroom and within the household versus what Victoria was doing? Like, did it, which is, which is the truer version? I think what is easy to forget when making a period drama is that these are real people because I think we see period drama characters a lot as just like 
you know, aliens almost from the past who didn't have feelings and didn't kind of, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. They didn't shit and fuck yes. and cry and do you yes. know what I mean? And have yeah. anxiety and yeah. wonder what the meaning of life was and all yeah. that sort of thing and get annoyed with their siblings. Do you know what I mean? And I think probably that the more accurate thing is is that people, of course people enjoyed sex. People are people. People have always enjoyed sex. But you were right in that the role of the women of the day was to have sex purely for having children and it was considered unwomanly and unladylike and sort of lowly if you acted like you liked it. And in fact, there's a, a guide for wives at the time that instructs women to like coyly turn your cheek if he tries to kiss you and then pretend you need need the loo <laughs> if he makes an advance and what to get out of having to get sex. out of having sex there's like tips of like how to get out of it even when you're married even when it's like all consensual and you're married and god's Is signed this off like on it an actual like pamphlet from the time yeah it's a book it's called a guide for husbands and wives i can't remember the name of the author but a woman wrote it and what a woman wrote it what? always <laughs> well it's, i think it's mostly for women to be like what do i do when i get married wow but i mean great I'm advice if you don't want to have sex ladies just pretend you need a wee <laughs> I I mean yeah yeah I I'm just I'm still sort of like trying to get my head around what the difference was between the the regal status and those with money and power mm. and then what was going on in kind of what you know normal living did then did you get any sort of like conversation about that when you were doing the show did did Jenna get to have any sex no um. <laughs> Victoria and Albert had sex scenes yeah and other characters had sex scenes too I think David Oakes's character who was the Prince Ernest Albert's brother had quite a racy sex scene because he visited a brothel in the show because famously Ernest contracted syphilis and that's why he died young and I think that was obviously you know running rampant at the time so I guess that was a big difference as well, was, you know, yeah. trying to avoid disease. It's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, with uh, there was an amazing exhibition up in Scotland that I missed in 2021 that actually really deeply looked into the history of sex and sexual behaviours because I think we're gathering so much information. That's why Victoria's diaries mm. are so helpful because we're kind of gathering information from, you know, it's tricky, isn't it, to get a good sense of history, I guess, around something mm. that is so riddled with shame. Yeah. Because that's really the issue with it, mm. is that what's the truth and what's not the truth about mm. sex historically. We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan, or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www allbrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Allbright app available in the App Store. Allbright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what happened for you during Victoria because you've just published a book called Just For Today and it was while you were filming Victoria that that first came to you as an idea. Mm. Why, why? <laughs> well, I mean, your mum is an author, obviously. Cresta yeah. is, an, is very successful fiction, so it's not like it's not like completely out of the blue, but what was going on during that period in your life while you were shooting Victoria that you started to get the feeling of that you wanted to write a book? I think I've always written something or other, whether it was just like scribbling really bad poetry or short stories or songs or anything, really scripts. And then I was just traveling so much. Something no one told me about being an actor is that you're constantly on trains or planes or waiting around in a trailer. So I just had a lot of like space basically. And I always think creativity is an energy and it's like it needs a release valve and you have to let it out somehow. And it was sort of bubbling up within me and I had all these train journeys up and forth to Yorkshire to film Victoria. So, and I find train journeys very creative space, that kind of like liminal period and yeah, the views and just kind of, yeah, you're kind of neither here nor there, literally. And yeah, I just started scribbling something in a notebook and lo and behold, the notebook just became full. And then that was the beginning of my book. And did it kind of flow out of you? Was it like you started writing it and then just carried on or did it, uh, did it kind of flow and then yeah. ebb quite a lot? Because that's how my writing Definitely, goes. definitely like long periods of deep flow state and it just pours out of me. When I do it, it pours out of me, but then I have these big breaks either because I'm working on an acting project or, you know, just going through a period of intense self-doubt and just wanting to run away from it and bury my head in the sand yeah. or whatever reason. But I, yeah, it's very kind of like feast or famine process for me. And does the self-doubt, I mean, does it come from specific things that happen in your life or does it sometimes just come out of nowhere? That's a really good question. I, if it comes from something, I haven't identified the trigger. <laughs> I wish I knew. I think it's just really hard work. Like, you know, from writing a book, writing a book's bloody hard work and mm. it takes a really long time. And so inevitably during that, whole process there are going to be moments where you just want to give up and mm. you're just tired and you've had enough mm. and I think so the brain's way of excusing that behavior for me maybe is to go like it's shit anyway don't bother mm. <laughs> and then you kind of have to come back to it after a while and see it with new eyes and did you do so for me one of the things with writing so I'm I've, I've just written half a book which we've got here today. Yay! Yes. Um, and Nels has written just for today and with me I'm writing a feature film script now and one of the constant thoughts I have is this isn't an interesting subject matter. Like, no mm. one's going to care about this subject matter. Did you have any of that? I worried about the level of privilege of my characters that I was writing, reflecting my own privilege and people being like, I can't relate to this because all these people have fairly easy lives. And right. that worried me a little bit. And would people be able to engage? But I think, as I was saying about period drama characters, to bring it back to that, like, human truth is human truth and feelings are feelings. And I think regardless of sort of social status, those 
universal human truths are true for everyone. Mm. But the self-doubt I had wasn't so much around that. It was more just if I could write or not. You know, mm. it was my first book. No one had told me to write a book. I didn't have a book deal. I didn't have a literary agent. Mm. So for all I knew, it was for nothing. It was just going to be three years of my life and 90,000 words just in the bin. <laughs> mm. And for those people who are here today and, and listening later on in the podcast, can mm. you just say a little bit about what the story of the book is? So the story of the book is, it begins and ends with a tragedy. It's a year in the life of the heroine who is called Joni. And she is 25 going on 26. And it's kind of a year of awakening for her and loss of innocence and kind of falling in love with the wrong person and realizing that the party, as my publishers gave me the great tagline, the party has to end sometime. (laughs) It's kind of realizing that there are consequences and that you sort of have to grow up at some point. And is Jolie you? No. She started out with me for about three sentences and then ran away with herself and totally became her own person. But I'm really fond of her. I like, really care about her. She feels like a little sister or something. So when you, when you were first writing Just For Today and Jolie was you, mm. was it always going to be a fiction? Was it going to be a fictionalised version of you or was there any stage when you were going to write a memoir? No, it wasn't. It never started out as a memoir. It was just that I'd had some experiences in my 20s that I was like, these are great stories. I've got to put them in a book. And then, to be honest with you, I just... Have you read The Secret History by Donna Tartt? I have. I'm obsessed with that book. And I just wanted to write another secret history. Because <laughs> I love that book so much. And I read all her books. And then I read all the books that everyone said were similar to that book. And nothing, like, scratched the itch in the same way mm. as Secret History had done. And I was like, I'll write one. So in the original version of my book, that was going to be a murder. <laughs> yeah. And then, as I began to write it, it just became a more kind of, like, human coming-of-age story. Yeah. I would say 90% of my female friends when I ask them what their favourite book is say Secret History The Secret History of Edwin Yeah, yeah. It's, like it's not my favourite anymore but I think it definitely hits you really hard the first time you read it if you're kind of at that age Yeah and you mentioned, you mentioned that you've had some you, there were some stories in your 20s that you thought were a really good piece of content for a book which mm. is your favourite story from your own experience in your 20s I think the seal there's a moment in my book where two characters are swimming in the sea in the middle of the night in Cornwall <laughs> and they, they're in the sea and this happened to me I was swimming in the sea with a friend in the book it's a love interest but it happened to me with a friend and we'd just driven down from London it took us like seven hours so we just jumped straight in the sea naked and we're like woo under the stars and then we heard this noise behind us like <gasps> like this and we were like what the fuck is that <laughs> and we both like swam out the sea like clambering over each other like pushing each other back to the beast being like you get eaten not me and then we stood on the beach like holding each other screaming and then we looked and it was just like a really cute seal <laughs> seals are quite dangerous aren't they I don't know but it was it seemed very innocent like a dog when it when we saw it it was like oh it's like a puppy bless but in the water that instinct of like oh my god it's a monster <laughs> it's a monster or a shark or something now I thought you were going to tell me some debauched story about like some no, cocaine very clean. Night very clean where like I don't know like you jumped on the train tracks and the train came and it's about oh, a seal it's so lovely it's very wholesome but I do think the seals are actually quite quite dangerous does anybody know in the audience <laughs> no but seriously the happy vagina Nikki. aka the seal awareness podcast <laughs> <laughs> really important message. If you're, if you're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna put something up at the end of the podcast. If you're in danger of being attacked by a seal, um, one of the things that's been said about your book is that it is a, and you've just referred to it's a, a loss of innocence mm. that um, that that time in one's life when you start to 
realize that you've got responsibilities and that as you've said there are consequences to some of your actions and and to me when I read that and when I read the book I thought oh it's it's about growing up Mm. and actually becoming an adult do you do you feel like the book has helped you become an adult now or do you feel like you're an adult before you wrote the book or do you think it's changed you as a person so many deep questions I definitely thought I was an adult when I wrote it and now I am so aware of how not much of an adult I remain Ah. that I look back and I'm like you baby you idiot um (laughs) but that's kind of relevant for her as well I think Uh, yeah what's really weird is that from naught to ten you're a child and you're just starting to have to to have memories right you're starting to have a brain that wakes up and starts recording and then from 10 to 20 you just like wish for the next decade really hard you're like oh my god I'm at school I'm for me anyway I'm so bored I can't wait for the next chapter of my life to begin I can't wait to get out of school and to live my life and then 20 to 30 is the first decade of your life where you go shit that decade's over whoa that went quickly when I turned 30 I was like oh my god that was it that was my 20s are you joking can I do it again please (laughs) and I think that's where I'm at at the moment with that. Mm. And Joni's not there yet. The protagonist of my novel is in the middle of that, I think. But also, when I was, when you know, as you know, I, I lost my mum when I was 27. But when God. she was here during that period, one of the greatest things that she ever said to me, because I think I just left university and I was maybe at drama school. And my mum just said to me that she always thought the 20s were, of course, that every decade of life has its challenges, but there's something about that period of time in your 20s where you're supposed to be taking care of yourself and becoming a grown-up that is particularly challenging. It's like a it's like a, a cognition, like this whole kind of like about change where you've mm. been through these systems that have mo- mollycoddled you to a certain extent yeah. and you're having to grow up. Yeah. It is, it is a difficult period. What would you say your greatest gift from writing the book is? Ooh, my greatest gift from writing the book. It means that I can say when people meet me and think I'm a dumb blonde actress, I have a book out actually. (laughs) That's the main thing. Which is just the the perfect segue to, to, uh, that wasn't scripted by the way, that was just brilliant. Or maybe, maybe she's just incredibly clever because as I mentioned earlier, one of the suggestions around uh, women, listen, I I think it's really important just to say that I, I do understand that uh, men and women and, and and all genders have their own struggles with being shamed and issues of how we're perceived and all that. So, but I'm but because I'm talking to Nell, I'm going to keep it about women. But you you have expressed, you know, both publicly and to me privately now that you get very angry and confused around the objectification of women. And as I referenced earlier. Women who dress provocatively are often thought of as stupid. And you've just said that one of the reasons you like the fact that you've got the book is so that you can prove to people that you're intelligent. And I have to tell you now, we have a book club together. Mm. And when Nell talks in our book club, I'm like, wow, Nell is so bright. But it's like this thought process that you have. I mean, do you feel misunderstood now? Yeah. All the time. When did that start? Oh, God, what a deep question. I mean, I think I'm a recovering codependent. Shout out to all the recovering codependents. And I think for a long time, as a codependent teenager, child growing up, you don't have a very strong sense of identity because you're just constantly trying to like become the perfect mirror to whoever you're around. 
And I think that it firstly just took a really long time for me to sort of figure out what that core identity of who Nell is, who I am was, and, and even just own the fact that I'm intelligent. Combine that with the confusion of trying to hide your own intelligence to sort of fit in and be likable, especially if you're codependent and you're like, oh, I want you to like me so much. Okay, don't worry, I'm stupid. I think it was it was a it was that toxic kind of yeah combination for me that like led to years of like tap dancing I've heard people call it of like just trying to be the right thing to fit in and often being a smart woman wasn't correct yeah but it's also this thing that we're talking about with the g-string sorry to go back to the g-string but it's like somehow or other you can't be like um, you know, a, a siren, and actually, mm. I had a really great chat with Dita Von Tees on this podcast so in season four, where she said that she felt that a woman saying, I want to be objectified and I want to wear something that would be perceived as racy and enjoy being objectif objectified, say, I want that, is the last hurdle of feminism. Mm. And I think, I think there's a lot to unpick there, it's a really complicated subject. But I think that she's onto something. I think that one of the issues is is how we how we experience it from a really young age, and and just you know as you've just mentioned, it it has impacted your entire life. This trying to fit in and trying to be, I would say, something that you're not. But I also I do wonder if these things start from a very kind of early school age. So I went to a Catholic school and it was a uniform wearing school, but every now and again we'd have a non-uniform day. And one non-uniform day when I was, I think 13, I got sent home because apparently what I was wearing was too provocative, <laughs> aged 13. And I got home and my mom works from home because she's a writer. And she was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I've been sent home because my top was too revealing. And she was like, take it off. And she took my top and she walked into my school and she walked into my deputy headmaster's office and held it up and screamed at him, this is a gray fucking t-shirt. And I was 13, I didn't know I had boobs, but basically my male Catholic teachers at my Catholic school felt uncomfortable seeing a 13 year old girl who was like just starting to sprout breasts that she wasn't even bloody aware of yet in a slightly low cut top. Like it really, it was a gray t-shirt. I was wearing a gray t-shirt and jeans. It was like round neck. But yeah, apparently that made people feel uncomfortable. And that was my first very like obvious experience of me being the problem. You go home. You're the, you, you are the problem. You need to leave as opposed to, oh, hang on. Maybe there's something wrong with me if I'm looking at a 13 year old child and feeling uncomfortable. Mm. But you know, the conversation around codependency and then trying to fit in. So if I had experiences like that at school too. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, this podcast is not about me, so I'm not going to, but I just would say I really identify. And I would say that some of those early year experiences for me as a young woman are some of the things that started to really distort my own experience of myself mm. within society. So I started to be conditioned without even knowing I was being conditioned by this judgment that was being put on me, yeah. by systems that were put in place supposedly to protect us, but actually, as you've just said, actually highlight the fact that there's a problem potentially somewhere else. Mm. Do you think that that experience that you had had that kind of knock-on effect into your life? Definitely, I, I to this day, have to unpick how I feel about my own sexuality. It confuses me so much because sexuality was projected onto me at such a young age yeah. that I was sexy. 
that I'm like, and then that I definitely internalized it to begin with. And I was like, yeah, I am, I am sexy. And that was like a badge that I wore with pride. And then, you know, the older I get and the less I enjoy, I think there was a little bit of me that I'll admit to as a teen, late teenager early, in my early 20s that really enjoyed like being looked at on the street and feeling like, oh yeah, I'm getting looked at. I'm getting looks on the street. Maybe it's the actor in me, I don't know. But it, it gave me some kind of affirmation that now I'm like, who cares? Like, And now I hate it. If someone looks at me on the street or whistles at me, I will shout at them. And I really loathe it. And it's for me like unpicking like, okay, so... What, what is my sexuality? How do I feel about myself as a sexy woman, quote unquote? So it did, yeah, it really confused me because later with like being called a slut a lot, that was like, I guess I am a slut because ever since I was 13, people have said I'm like sexual in some way. So yeah, I'll, I'll take that label and kind of swallow it and internalize it and feel the shame that you that was intended behind that. Mm. I, I just I just feel so sad. I'm sat here listening to you and I mm. just feel so sad for us all as human beings mm. that somehow or other we've created this society where we're all so scared of each other <laughs> and so, so threatened yeah. by sex mm. that we even have these tropes of like being defined. I'm going to define that person over there as this thing so I can feel safe. Essentially, yeah. that's what it, it is. is. Fear. I think it is fear-based. I think Absolutely you're right. Absolutely fear-based. Mm. But obviously you did then choose to go into the entertainment industry. And <laughs> because yeah. you're very talented you. and good. And and then that that kind of experience that you had at school kind of carried on in the press when mm. you were on the red carpet and the media started to discuss you. And what I find really interesting, so you had one specific experience. Yeah. Can you just say a bit about that? Yeah, so after the first series of Victoria in which I played a maid in a very... Victorian grey dress with like a low bun and no makeup looking really drab and plain I wanted to look really glamorous for the premiere of the first season and I wore a very glamorous dress and I looked very hot and <laughs> and um the Daily Mail ran an article online where the headline was Nell Hudson reveals major side boob major at side Victoria boob. premiere and the content of the article was you know, very laced with implicit misogyny, implicit Madonna whore complex crap, written by a woman, I will add. And yeah, it was just very clear that like, there was judgment being made about it. When you say Madonna whore complex, what do you mean by that? Well, literally, obviously Madonna whore complex is women have to fit into those two camps. You're either a Madonna and you're a mother figure or you're a whore and you're a sexual object. And in the article, they compared me to the leading actress in the show, Jenna. No shade to Jenna. And uh, she wore a dress that was like quite high necked and covered her up and she looked absolutely stunning, but so did I. And uh, it said like, meanwhile, Jenna Coleman looked elegant and graceful. And it was those sorts of epithets that were like, this is ladylike, this is appropriate. And then it's like Nell Hudson's dress. And there was a poll at the end of the article. There was a poll that the public could take, which was, what did you think? And it was like option A, this dress is completely unsuitable. <gasps> option B, maybe it would be better for a nightclub. And option C, I think she looks good. <laughs> and I think luckily the public were woke enough to vote for option C. That's not woke. That's just I know. normal. Well, just common sense. I mean, maybe woke but, is normal, but that's not yeah. woke. That's no, just no, no, like no. being you a healthy human I mean. being. One of the things that I that I found really I mean for me when I met Nell Nell and I've been friends for a few years and when I first met her one of the things that I said to her was that 
I thought she was extremely talented. And I, I think that actresses that can play the whole range of characters from the sort of slightly more frumpy uh, uh, maid downstairs through to the Royal Glamour person. I said, you'll have a really long career because I think what happens to us as actresses is we get pigeonholed. So you go, that's what you do. So I was quite excited for you that you had that range, but I completely understand that being spoken about like that in the media is unacceptable. One of the things that I was quite curious about with that dress was the Liz Hurley dress. Oh, God, the so famous iconic. Liz Hurley dress that, that went viral, mm. where it was done up with safety pins down the side. Mm. And I did look up some of the articles around that time. And it's really weird now, but the, but the language was different. Oh, really? Like they, yeah, like it was lad culture. It was yeah. in a period of time when there was a lad culture about women. So that dress was worn in a period of time when the media was kind of like being laddie about women as well. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that they were kind of, they were uplifting that dress, which also sh showed, what was it? A huge amount of side boob. What, what did they- Major. Show? Major, major amount of side boob. So Liz Hurley had a major amount of side boob as well, but they didn't, they weren't, degrading her in the right. same way yeah. as they well, it were was you. covert degrading. I think that I think that's almost the problem. In a way, lad culture misogyny was, at least it was bloody out there and obvious, like way, look at these tits. Whereas with the Daily Mail article about me, it was just all these subtle little ways where they sort of know they can't get away with saying it anymore. So they say it in this kind of cloak and dagger way. Mm. And was that your first experience in the media of being spoken about like that? Yes. And how, how I mean, obviously you've just kind of expressed energetically how it made you feel, but mm. what, what, when you saw that article, what was your first response to it, both feeling and thinking? I remember being filled with adrenaline because it was new to me being, like the Daily Mail column of shame was almost like a bit of an exciting thing at that time. I was kind of like, oh my God, I'm in the Daily Mail. How cool, I'm famous. <laughs> like, it's so silly, but like that was, that was the initial thing. It felt kind of exciting on one level and then I didn't look at it genuinely for what must have been at least five years. I didn't think about it and I'd blocked a lot of it. And then I'm actually writing a nonfiction book myself with a feminist agenda. And one of the chapters is on objectification. And I thought, well, I'd better bloody dig out that article then and talk about my own experience. And I'd completely blocked the thing about them comparing me to Jenna because in my head, it was just like Nell Hudson reveals major side boob. That was the headline. And then looking back at it and seeing how they'd done this, like, let's compare these two women thing and pit them against each other and talk and literally hold up examples, images of like what's okay as a woman and what's not. It made me really upset when I, when I came back to it. I felt really hurt and sad. And I looked up the journalist because I was like, shall I write to her? Shall I, shall I confront this face to face? And I haven't. But maybe if the book comes out, I will. Do you need me to beat her up for you? <laughs> no, I think we'd better I'm, not. I'm, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> I'm available. Back to objectification now, because I think, I think there's something in what Dita Von Tees is saying, and I feel it's such a complex area at the moment. You're saying that you don't enjoy being whistled at on the street anymore. Mm. I'm in my late 40s. When men are stopping whistling at me, I'm like, why aren't they whistling at me anymore? <laughs> and I, yeah. I think that one of the things that we need to look at here is what's underneath it. And I think that our attitudes towards sex, because really what we're doing is we're shaming people for uh, presenting an idea of sex and underneath that as I've just said is shame mm. surely it's shame 
that we need to look at rather than objectification. Surely, as human beings, we're allowed to have a different feeling or experience about being objectified every day. One day, I mean, it's like, yeah. to me, somehow or other, we're coming at it from the wrong angle. Surely it's the shame that we feel as human beings mm. is where we need to be really looking. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I think, yes, there is a collective cultural shame around sexuality that needs very, very violently addressing. But then also, like, the onus is on men who whistle and men who leer and shout and, you know, harass women. And is that a shame thing? Is a man whistling because he feels collective cultural sexual shame? Or is he whistling because he sees you as an object? No, but I think the thing is, the, diff the, 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 tri the tricky thing is, is where does the line lie between mm. harassment mm. and actually enjoying another human being i don't i don't have the answer i just feel what dita von t said was really really yeah. interesting about why we find being the the human being because it's so like it's so steeped and kind of really historical shame that we have to somehow be humble and not enjoy mm. being looked at like we impose on on our little people this thing that they have to be like you know seen and not heard and small and like why aren't we allowed and don't be attention seeking that it's exactly yeah. that and i do think it's really complicated yeah. but i just think that it's it's worth always bearing in mind what we're it's not i don't think it's as black and white as objectification and not objectification you know mm. and it gets even more complicated when you talk about whether what's what's going on with the young women now as in like the eight to nine year olds who are seeing their famous pop stars who they love and they're dressing like you know a teenager at eight and nine and yeah. then those young girls so it's, it's i just, did that at eight and nine yeah i saw the moulin rouge video with christina aguilera and Pink. yeah and I asked my mum for like suspenders and gato and stuff when I was like eight. Because I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> I know, but I just don't Never know what happened. the answer is because is that bold or I is that acting out? Having and I like think lived it, I think the answer is just to be like, you can dress up in those at home, but you can't wear them out. I think it's really important to not shame children for like wanting to emulate the people that they admire and say like, you're naughty, you shouldn't, you know, no, you don't dress in things like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think that's more damaging, which is what you're saying, which yeah. is like shame. We've got to get rid of the shame. Yeah. It does have a really bad impact on children's mental health. This conversation, as we've said, when you were at school, both of us have had bad experiences at school. Mm. I just, what have you done in order to help your own mental health in this area that's impacted you so significantly? So, uh, it's so funny. Like, it's not, it shouldn't be up to me, but I've taken to really like covering up sometimes if I'm just like I cannot be bothered because I have a dog and often when I take my dog out I get sexually harassed on the street like on a daily weekly basis people will say something to me that is unsolicited and they wouldn't say if I was a man walking a dog and so purely for my own sanity I'll just be like I'm just gonna put on a really big oversized shapeless coat and even possibly like a hat to hide my hair and my blonde hair and all this stuff that is just a like small self-protection measure that I sometimes take. I've actually had a t-shirt made. This is so geeky. I've had a t-shirt <laughs> made that says, would you say it to a man? Because I am so sick of people saying things to me when I'm walking my dog that they would not say to a man. But also I think humor is a really good antidote to- Totally need to sell those on the happy vagina. I, well, don't think I don't have, have a business plan for those t-shirts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think laughing is a good way of dealing with it. I follow a lot of like really funny accounts on social media that completely subvert the the narrative and like man who has it all on Twitter is a really good one. 
Interesting, interesting. And in terms of your mental health, like what do you do? So those are kind of like social things that you do. Yeah. What What do you do about your mental health? So if there are any young women particularly that are listening yeah. to this podcast today who are identifying and struggling with trying to keep their mental... Well, actually, I suppose really what we're saying is keep their own self-esteem mm. separate to what people say or think of them mm. so that they don't go into shame spirals. Mm. What have been the things that help you to do that? I think it's a lot about having a relationship with my body that is free of shame and in all different ways. I feel that I've grown up in a world that wants me to be ashamed of my body, whether it's its size, its femininity, its sexuality, its paleness, all different things fully aware of my white privilege and I'm just saying paleness in terms of like you know we're sort of told that if you're too pale you look this you know all sorts of things but anyway I think sort of eradicating shame from just my feelings about my own body means that if someone else tries to shame me I know that I have a rock solid like internal boundary of like no like I don't feel ashamed about my body so no matter what you throw at me I feel good because obviously you're going to be wobblier if you already feel kind of shit about yourself if someone tries to make you feel bad about your body and you already do so for me working on that relationship with my body and my own self-esteem through yoga has really helped yoga gets you into your body like nothing else for me like no other form of exercise does and and sort of inhabiting the body properly and sort of seeing it as this incredible thing and gift as opposed to something to be looked at yeah, and, and like something that actually just works for us to move us around yeah. and like look after yeah, us. Yeah, and how lucky. And I, I did see on your Instagram feed that you'd like, you'd written a kind of list of not affirmations. Yeah, but affirmations. Do you use that as a. As a as I do a, when I remember to. Yeah. <laughs> I get really bad. When I, my therapist told me years ago, like, write affirmations and gratitudes every single day, and I did it every day for a while. and... I've got a bit slack, but it yeah. does help. It definitely helps. And you've mentioned therapy a few times. So mm. is that something that's really helped you? A hundred percent. I don't think I'd be here, not joking, wouldn't be here without it. Genuinely. It's really, really helped me. And I'm so lucky that I was able to have it. I know having recently tried to go through the, basically my parents intervened. I had a really bad time with my mental health in my early twenties and my parents just swooped in and were like, we're going to help you. I recently consulted the NHS for something about my mental health and have experienced now like quite how backlogged they are and overrun they are and yeah I feel incredibly lucky to have had the therapy that I've had because mm. it's really tough out there mm. if if you are listening to this podcast we will actually genuinely put a list of resources for anyone who's struggling mm. of affordable therapeutic help I was joking about the seals I'm serious about this <laughs> there will be a list of ways that you can go and get help and some some accounts that you can follow to support you if mm. you're struggling with your with your your you know your body identity or just you know generally feeling like you're losing yourself and you need some help to find yourself mm. now it's been such an honor speaking to you thank you so much for sharing thank so you. so honestly it's been a really insightful and some of the things that you've said and shared have been really brave we can't finish this podcast without our genuinely favorite question, <laughs> which we ask at the end of every podcast. And that is, now Hudson, what makes your vagina happy? Lack of shame is a big one. We've been talking about shame a lot. I think having no shame around it and, and like little things like, I used to be so embarrassed if I ever got like thrush, which happens. It's really normal to sometimes get thrush. 
I'd be like, oh God, I've got thrush. I can't tell my boyfriend how embarrassing or like mention it. Mm. Just like little things like that just help you just to be like, just normalize it, demystify it, connect with it, get to know it. Just like, yeah, just being a lot more familiar with it and a lot less embarrassed about it. Big whoops and claps from the audience. I think that's a really, really beautiful answer and that is a excellent <laughs> place to end. Let's end on thrush. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Hudson, thank you thank so you. much for joining me at Jupiter Rising Festival in Scotland for this epic live recording of the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jupiter Rising. Love you. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow, subscribe and review. It helps others to find our podcast and look out for our weekly videos going up on YouTube and Instagram at The Happy Vagina. Don't forget to check out our sponsors for this episode, the exquisitely simple, beautifully designed Beja London for all your lingerie and swimwear needs. www.beja.london Once you've chosen your bra, pour some knickers to match, then use the code THEHAPPYVAGINA at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. That's www.beja.london. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.